Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. This is the final class of our uh, 2023 review of the Dhammapada. Um, just to remind everyone, I finally did publish this book in three formats, and it's rushing to the top of the bestseller list <laughs> in my house. Um, and, you know, as I've been saying for the past five, six, seven classes, the Dhammapada in the, towards these last seven or eight classes really builds in, I don't want to say intensity, but maybe in directness um, and immediacy of how the Buddha teaches his Dhamma. The Buddha's Dhamma is meant to be practice, practiced immediately, meaning in this moment. There's no Dhamma practice that can be practiced in the past. And of course, we can't practice for tomorrow. We can only practice right here and right now. Um, this last chapter called the Brahmana Bhaga, uh, Brahman refers to initially Vedic priests where the Buddha studied the, uh, the modern, the, the contemporary um, spiritual teachings during the Buddha's life were all based on the, the, the Vedas and the Upanishads. Uh, I shouldn't say all, primarily. Um, and he rejected those. And again, I'm not rejecting the, the Hindu faith, which is based on those, <clears throat> although I'm saying Buddha found them lacking in what he was seeking understanding of, which is understanding four noble truths. And of course, there's nothing, there's no religion in the world that I know of that concerns itself at all with these four noble truths. Again, it doesn't mean that they're lesser teachings or anything. It just means they're different. Um, and as we know, the Buddha didn't teach anything salvific. We're not trying to save ourselves. We're not trying to fix broken human beings. We're simply here to understand these four noble truths. And so this last chapter um, is, is really a synopsis, a contextual synopsis of the previous 25 chapters. But it also places um, an, another direct importance on keeping Dhamma practice pure and noticing the difference between wise disciples, wise practitioners that have an opportunity to awaken and those that don't simply because they're distracted to other dharmas. And I, those that read my books know that I use, I use the word dharma and dhamma to distinguish between what the Buddha taught, the dhamma, and what other dharmas, Buddhist teachings are that are out there that the Buddha didn't teach. I'm going to read my, uh, my introduction to it. The 20... The 26th chapter of the Dhammapada is known as the Brahmanabhaga. This concluding chapter is a direct and concise teaching on what is to be developed through a well-focused Dhamma practice and the profound benefits of practicing the Dhamma as intended and originally taught. That's all the introduction I'm going to read there. The Brahmanabhaga, the culmination of the path, Engage in right effort. Immediately, the Buddha sets out to think, this is what we need to do. Root out the constant stream of craving 
abandoned sense desires, know the destruction of all conditioned things in reference to dependent origination. Know the cruel, calm peace of cessation. When an arahant, an awakened human being through the Buddha's Dhamma, has developed profound concentration and skillful insight, they know the Four Noble Truth and have abandoned the fetters. It's really not that difficult, is it? Because those of us that understand what we're doing, when an arahant has developed profound concentration and skillful insight, they know the Four Noble Truths and have abandoned the fetters. The skillful, wise disciple is carefree and unfettered. They have abandoned craving and the objects of their craving. This one I call an arahan. Those who are established in jhana, free of the defilements, greed and aversion, passions cooled, calm, the task complete, liberated from ignorance, having reached the goal, these I call arahans. So in the Buddha's Dhamma, it's clear what we're doing and what we're, we hope to develop. For many years, I, and again, I'm not knocking, I'm just, it's just my comment on my experience. For many years, I studied in most of the major schools of Buddhism, thinking in one of those, I had to find what I was looking for, even though I didn't know what I was looking for. I didn't know what I was looking for was myself. And it wasn't until I came to know what the Buddha actually taught that anything made sense to me or presented any goal as something useful and that I might be able to attain in this human life. The sun illuminates the day, the moon illuminates the night, the warrior shines in their armor, the skillful wise disciple shines in jhana. Arahants illuminate both day and night. The Arahant has abandoned all unskillful behavior, their mind concentrates. <clears throat> Having renounced their impurities, they are true renunciates. So that, that's in reference to um, the ascetic practices that were common during the Buddha's time. And also with, uh, in our time, it's, it, it's really everywhere that, and it's rooted in self-loathing. And the idea is, in, in very ascetic practices, that if you deny everything that a human being needs just to survive, in the Buddha's day, it was severe fasting. It said that he lived on a grain of rice for many you know, months and months and months <clears throat> at a time, so much so that just prior to his awakening, uh, in the stories, it, it, it says that the Buddha could touch his spine by touching his belly. He was so emaciated. And you all remember, might be wrong, that story about Sujata at the, uh, as the Buddha was walking down the road and he passed out from severe malnutrition and he rolled into a little river and Sujata, a 12-year-old girl, pulled him out of the river, saved his life and gave him a little bowl of rice gruel and started that started nourishing him back to health. Um, and so he, he practiced all these things um, that the religions of the time taught him to, that if he would renounce these things, that it would lead to his awakening. But of course, renouncing something is not the same as abandoning something within the, the Buddhist Dhamma. So we're not saying that we, that we have to abandon taking nourishment through food, 
but we treat food as we treat everything else in balance. We don't let it get away from us and that type of thing. So renunciance in the Buddhist sense is renouncing ignorance of Four Noble Truths and what is associated with that. Oh, the Buddha's words. A wise disciple should not be struck. If they are struck, they should renounce anger. Shame on those who injure anyone or gives in to anger. Nothing is superior for the skillful wise dis disciple than wise restraint. Again, we've been developing that for the last few chapters. To the extent that anger and ill will is abandoned is the extent that suffering will subside. subside. Read it again. To the extent that anger and ill will is abandoned is the extent that suffering will survive, will subside, sorry. And so, you know, you, I, you often heard me say that uh, I, I was just an angry child. I, that when I was born, the doctor slapped my butt and I slapped the doctor. <laughs> and I think that really might be true. And I was angry throughout my whole life. And I had no reason to be angry. I had grown <clears> in a nice middle-class family with, with really two wonderful parents and five rather <laughs> interesting siblings. Um, but I was angry. I hated my life. I hated my, hated myself uh, because I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't understand what was the purpose of all of this. And it wasn't until I was angry throughout a lot of my uh, early Buddhist practice, also, although I learned to be very careful not to show it because then it would show that, well, you're not a real Buddhist. But I was terribly angry and frustrated. Um, I still remember talking to, to John Lurie about this on our rushes to get hot dogs. You know, what, what's wrong with me? I come, I'm so angry. And his response was, just meditate. But that that just reinforced the story I kept telling myself to justify my anger that people were doing things to me. The world, the world was this way and that way. And my anger was justified. Anger is never justified. It's the essence of I making, and it's the essence of self-inflicted suffering. And it also causes an awful lot of harm in the, the, the angered person's life, my life, and the life of everyone around them. And that spreads out all over the planet. Now, we're, we're, we've gotten to the place where now we seem to almost worship anger. And we encourage people to develop their anger, to make themselves even more angry and more divisive and more crazy. And the Buddha recognizes 2,600 years ago. To the extent that anger and ill will is abandoned is the extent that suffering will subside. That's been true in my case. Those restrained in thought, word, and deed, I call skillful, wise disciples. Just as a Brahmin priest, excuse me, reveres his sacrificial fire, so should a skillful, wise disciple revere the Dhamma taught by me. So it's not rites and rituals, it's practicing the Dhamma. It is not by matted hair or lineage or birth does one become skillful, wise disciple. Those that know the Four Noble Truths and are free of conflict are skillful, wise disciples. So again, it's not by the ascetic practices. And it's not by the, uh, engaging in the right lineage. There's a lot of emphasis on that in modern Buddhism. 
where's your lineage and they'll they'll string together maybe even going back to Dogen and the Zen schools, this teacher, this teacher, and this teacher, the lineage going all the way back to the Buddha is present and whoever was in front of you. There was one place that I went to religiously and I noticed that they had this, this ritual that they had a little statue of the Buddha in a wooden box with a door on it and when the whoever was teaching um, that day, once they sat down on their uh, Zafu and Zabutan in front of the class, they make kind of a big ceremony of going up slowly and slowly closing the door on the Buddha statue. And uh, for about a year, I was wondering, why are they doing that? I wanted to, it seemed like an odd thing to do. When I finally got up the nerve to ask one of the monks that I had become kind of a friend to, and he said, well, well, they do that because now the Buddha's in that, in the teacher. And I can understand the, 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 the magical thinking that would want to conjure up something like that. But of course, the man in front of me wasn't the Buddha. He was a nice guy who knew a lot about that particular form of Buddhism. But you're not going to convince me that Siddhartha Gautama sometime, somehow left that wooden statue and jumped in this guy just because he's wearing robes. And the Buddha talks about even that, doesn't it? We've covered that in the Dhammapada. It's not by just the outer appearance that shows that we're a Dhamma practitioner. Are we actually practicing the Dhamma? And the reason why I emphasize that so often is because the Buddha does. It's important to understand what we're practicing and why. It's not for any kind of magical experience. What is the use of your matted hair or antelope hide, foolish one, question mark. Within you is the tangle of passion. It is only outwardly that you cleanse yourself. Again, common during the Buddhist time, common during our time. The person who wears robes made of rags, lean, veins showing everywhere, who developed jhana in seclusion, this one can be called a skillful wise disciple. I do not call a person a skillful wise disciple because of their lineage or their birth, something common during the Buddha's time. If they continue to cling to worldly entanglements, they are just arrogant. If they continue to cling to worldly entanglements, they are just arrogant. Those who are free of craving and free of clinging to false dharmas, I call skillful wise disciples. A person who has abandoned all fetters and clinging, clinging to wrong views, liberated from ignorance, trembles no more. I call this person an arm. A skillful, wise disciple who has cut the bonds of hatred and craving, abandoned all wrong views, abandoned all defilements, released from ignorance, I call them an arm. A skillful, wise disciple without ill will who endures abuse and beatings and punishments, whose real power is patience, I call them an arahant. A skillful one. No, what the Buddha is saying is not necessarily that we're, we're not likely to be here <clears throat> today because we came here you know, to, to sit and practice. But there's things that happen in the world that tells us that we shouldn't be doing this, that maybe it's too selfish. And I've had people tell me that they can't practice 
especially when COVID hit, but even during that, that they feel selfish because there's so much turmoil in the world that who are they to develop common peace? Not understanding that we contribute to, to common in a con conflicted world. But it, you know, it's common to think, oh, the world's just crazy. And so how could I take the time to meditate? It's for us, it's for me as the individual practitioner, so I can understand what it means to be a human being in the midst of all this chaos and conflict. Remember, the world hasn't changed at all in the 2,600 years since the Buddha awakened. We're still rooted in conflict. We're still rooted in hatred and ill will. We still are intolerant of, of people that are outside of our tribe, for example, or people that I just simply don't like, maybe the way they look. All of that is insane, isn't it? We're all just human beings. I keep going back to Rodney King, and I'm not, not to get political. <clears throat> Why can't we all get along? This is way up. Why can't we all get along? Because we can't. I know it's a great question, but the answer is we can't yet. But we can learn to end conflict in our minds, so to stop contributing to the conflict in the world. And that's not the reason why we practice, but it is the result of practice. A skillful, wise disciple who is free from anger, devoted to the Dhamma, virtuous, free of craving, well-restrained, unprovoked by ignorance. I call them an arma. When the Buddha awakened, one of the things that he said, we all probably remember the, the picture of him with his finger touching the ground, signifying he had overcome the world. But he also said, there's nothing left within me to provoke another moment rooted in ignorance. There's nothing left within me to provoke another moment rooted in ignorance. That's what we're doing and that's what we're abandoning. That's what we're dredging up in jhana practice within the framework of the Eightfold Path. Those things that provoke, provoke a moment of ignorance. Like water on a lotus leaf or a mustard seed on the point of a needle, the skillful, wise disciple who is free of clinging to sensual pleasures, I call them an arahant. A skillful, wise disciple who in this very lifetime realizes the end of suffering who has put down the burden of self-referential views and became liberated, <clears throat> I call them an R. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so during the Buddhist time and in our time in some most Buddhist circles, that is a radical statement that wouldn't be accepted anywhere except here. A skillful, wise disciple in this very lifetime realizes awakening. That wasn't taught during the Buddha's time by all of the other practitioners. And just like today, it was often presented to me that human beings don't awaken anymore. If you're going to awaken, it's going to take an endless eons of lifetimes over and over and over and over and over again. And that always frustrated me. Because I wanted to awaken now. I wanted to know what is, what's going on here? Why am I here? Why am I having this human life? And I didn't learn that anywhere until I came to the Buddhist Dhamma and realized it's right here and right now. 
that I can awaken. It's right here and right now that I should awaken. There is no Dhamma in the past moment or the future moment. There's only Dhamma right here and right now. The Buddha continues, a skillful wise disciple with profound knowledge, wise, skilled in understanding the right and the wrong path, who has reached the highest goal, I call them an arahant. Again, the, the, the importance of staying on the path and not getting on a wrong path, because there's many paths that can seem wonderful and leading to salvation, but they're simply a distraction. The skillful wise disciple who is disentangled from householders and ascetics alike, who wanders freely with no fixed abode, wanting little, I call it an arahant. A skillful wise disciple who has, who has abandoned violence towards all living beings, whether weak or strong, who neither kills nor causes others to kill, I call it an arahant. A skillful, wise disciple who remains friendly in a hostile world, peaceful in the midst of violence, free of clinging amongst, amongst a clinging world, I call them an arahant. A skillful, wise disciple whose lust, hatred, pride, and hypocrisy have fallen away like a mustard seed from the point of a needle, I call them an arahant. A skillful, wise disciple who, speak with, who speaks with gentle, useful, and truthful words, free of ill will, I call them an arahant. I love that. You know, that's what we become. Skillful, wise disciple who speaks with gentle, useful, and truthful words, free of ill will, I call them an arahant. A skillful, wise disciple who takes nothing not freely given to them, free of, free of grasping, I call them an arahant. A skillful, wise disciple who grasps after nothing in this world or any other world, common during the Buddhist time to live in magical and mystical thinking, free of desires, liberated, I call them an arahant. A skillful, wise disciple who has developed perfect insight and is free of clinging to wrong views, free of doubt, free of the li living death of ignorance, I call them an arahant. That, that sentence is loosely related to um, the, the defilements um, and the experience of ongoing experience of five clinging aggregates and free of clinging to wrong views, which means taking it the personal. The skillful, wise disciple who has abandoned the yoke of, of grasping after merit or clinging to demerit, free of sorrow and regret. Stain free and pure, I call them an arahant. The skillful, wise disciple who is spouseless, I'm sorry, spouseless, spotless, pure, clear and serene as a full moon on a cloudless night, taking no delight in a fabricated existence, I call them an arahant. A skillful, wise disciple who is no longer mired in this perilous and deluded world who has crossed over the swamp of ignorance, their mind free of all doubt, resting in jhana, their passions extinguished, who have reached the goal, I call them an arahant. 
a skillful wise disciple who has abandoned sensual pleasures and the continuation of clinging to ignorance in any speculated and imaginary realms, free of all worldly entanglements, I call it an arahant. And the Buddha is saying abandon even the idea of salvation because there's nothing to be saved. A skillful wise disciple who has cast off the yoke of a mat of I making in this world and in all fabricated realms, free of ignorance, I call them an arahant. A skillful wise disciple who has abandoned likes and dislikes, greed and aversion, who has abandoned all conditioned beliefs, who has established a calm mind through jhana, a conqueror of all worlds, I call them an arahant. At last reference again is abandoning the idea of future births. The Buddha never taught rebirth in that way, or that in some future life or some future realm, uh, the realm of emptiness or nothingness, for instance, you'll, you'll find your salvation. That's conquering of all these worlds. But the world that the Buddha is referring to is between our ears, because that's where the world or the worlds, fabricated worlds, exist. Nothing exists save for the way that we think, right? Or we're, we have a human body um, and, and a mind that is part of that body. But distraction takes that mind out of the body and has it outwardly focused as eye nature. But when you take that mind out of that body in a, in a, uh, a physiological sense, death, what is left? Nothing, nothing of any use. But we do that to ourselves. That's why the Buddha talks like talks about ignorance and Four Noble Truth is like a living death. Because we don't have a mind where it should be, where it animates life. And it perceives what these worlds are around us and makes conclusions based on what it holds in mind. And if what we're holding in mind is framed by the Eightfold Path, then the conclusions that we're coming to about the world and ourselves in the world will be based in reality rather than any kind of speculation that has to arise from a mind that's outwardly focused and stuck and entangled in the world and influenced by the, the tribalism that's always present during the Buddhist time, during our time. Instead of remaining sovereign in this world by having control of our minds. The Buddha continues, a skillful, wise disciple who understands impermanence and the arising and passing away of all beings, free of all clinging, truly fortunate and liberated, I call them an arahant. A skillful, wise disciple who does not chase, chase gods, angels, or divas, or human ideology, who has overcome all defilements, I call them an arahant. A skillful, wise disciple who does not cling to the past, present, or future, who is not holding on to or grasping after anything <clears> in the world, I call them an arahant. A skillful, wise disciple, noble, heroic, excellent, passionless, pure, a true conqueror of the world, totally liberated from ignorance, I call them an arahant. A skillful, wise disciple who knows the arising and the passing away of all phenomena, 
who understands pleasure and pain, who has gained insight into the three marks of existence, who can no longer give birth to even a moment of ignorance, has reached the highest goal of understanding, understanding and calm. I call them an arhat indeed. The end of the Dhammapada and the end of today's class. Um, so I, I think I say this about almost every, uh, well, not every class, but um, I do say when we go through the truth of happiness and now the Dhammapada, I think we've done this five or six times. And each time it has an, an ever more um, deepening impact on how profound the Buddhist teachings were, but how simple they were. And also remarkably subtle, meaning because they are so subtle and they contain so much, every time I go through it or we go through it, we all gain, and I think, you know, we talked a little bit about this in previous classes. We see more and more of what the Buddha is actually teaching. Um, I used to liken the Four Noble Truths like this, uh, this beautiful um, jewel-encrusted box, and you open it up, and you look in it, and it contains everything you need, Four Noble Truths understanding the four noble truths. There's stress, there's the cause of stress, there's a cessation of stress, and there's an eightfold path leading to the cessation of stress. Uh, and the, the teachings become more meaningful to me the more I practice them each and every day. And it leads up, I think everybody, uh, mostly everybody that's here today is going on my retreat, and our retreat is going to be a, a a deep but uh, pleasant dive into the eightfold path. Uh, all right, let's uh, let's open it up for um, <laughs> discussion. And uh, Brian, how are you doing? I'm well. I uh, I don't think I can add anything to this one, so I'll take noble silence this morning. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, John. Yeah, uh, I, I agree, Brian. It's a hard act to follow. Isn't it? It, it's so profound. It's uh, what else could you add to it? I, I'm amazed, though. Uh, I, I've read this over before and several times this week and uh, listened to it again. And every time there's hundreds, maybe thousands of little things that just I didn't notice or wasn't conscious of before that just it's like a truth. It's, it's like a bell ringing each, each line. It's just an amazing, an amazing uh, text. I, I, I'm also, I guess, amazed at how simple it is, yet uh, how personally difficult it is to maintain a consciousness on that level minute to minute. Through through a normal day, we you know the at least at least the world I live in is pressing constantly yeah. for attention and stealing your focus. I guess is a good way to describe it. Um, 
Yeah, I guess, I guess that's all I've got. I, I'm interested to hear what everybody else thinks of it. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. It is, it, it's, um, you know, we're all householders, and it is more difficult to, to stay disentangled in the world while you're involved in it because the world is uh, characterized by, you know, all these all these snares, you know, like a rabbit getting caught in a snare. You know, the, the world is just like that. And those snares are everywhere. That's why concentration is so important. So you, you can maintain uh, a disentanglement from the world, at least as best as we can. We learn to be gentle with, us, gentle with ourselves when we're not. So thank you, Jeff. Good morning, Tom. Morning. Um, morning, John. Um, yeah. I guess just following on from your analogy a moment ago about the box, and the, ju the jewel, right? The jewel in the box, is that right? Yeah. Um, it, it got me thinking of a conversation I was in uh, not that long ago with, with some, I can't remember if it was friends or colleagues, and we were talking about um, what superpower would we choose to have? You know, it's one of those sort of silly conversations, you know, whatever, I, I wish I had the superpower to be able to do this or that, and we were I think we were, I think it was within the context of, um, you know, addressing some of the challenges the world faces today. Um, and what became apparent to me was the, the reality that refined mindfulness is in itself, the number one superpower that any of us can have. And we're incredibly lucky to have it. And as, as uh, Jeff just alluded to, it's, it's sometimes fleeting and it's in some ways challenging and difficult, but it's certainly easier than, than flying um, or uh, <laughs> anything else that we might, you know, challenge ourselves to do by jumping off a building or something. Um, so it is doable. And it, with yeah. sort of diligent practice, um, it, it can be done. And I think the only, you know, we're, we're all confident in that, right? Because we've all directly experienced it. So, yeah, so every so often I just remind myself of that. I'm like, I am incredibly fortunate to know this superpower and um, to be able to build my life around it, despite all of the immense you know, challenges we face in this world, um, especially perhaps at, at the moment. Um, so yeah, um, that's what I'm just, uh, I just, I, I, these, reading these suitors and rereading them just helps me to remember uh, our, our, our superpower. That's all. Yeah, I, I love it, Tom. Thank you. You know, it's, uh, you gotta get some uniforms with <laughs> Refined mindfulness man. Now we can't pronouns and all that stuff oh. today. Person. Yeah, refined. RMT. Refined mindfulness. Person. That would be an orange. That would be a uh, uh, saffron cape too, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> That's great, Tom. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, John. That's great, Tom. I love that. Um, and this, um, thank you, John, for the teaching. This is such a beautiful, beautiful teaching. I mean, it's so 
it's like a song or a poem and it's just that repetition that drumbeat of i call this one arahant i call this one and explaining every single facet of what might be an arahant as in the buddha's view as opposed to any other way of looking at it he explains it in detail so it's so complete I just really like the image of uh, cleansing oneself within. So it's not just the outward trappings, taking on rags or robes or shaving your head. Um, it's cleaning yourself, cleansing yourself of greed, aversion, polluted thinking. Yeah. Um, so it's just um, <clears throat> so much in it. It, it could be a, be a whole course on just this one. Yeah. And over and over again, Siddhartha keeps saying, you can do it. This is how you do it. And any human being can achieve this thing called arahantship, where, you know, we never knew that before. We never knew that we could become awakened, fully mature. Nobody ever taught me that, that that was an important thing to do in this life. In fact, I think the most important thing along with all the other things that we have to do in life. But we can do this. Now we see that we can integrate this practice into any type of life. <laughs> Thank you. Anthony, good to see you. Good to see everyone. Good morning. Um, enjoyed the sutta. And I mean, on the surface level, the message is pretty simple, right? Like just avoid the trappings of eye making and clinging and craving into increase concentration and gain insight into the three marks of existence pretty simple but then it, i was just overwhelmed by how informative it, it was in going through these are the things a skilled disciple does these are the things a skilled disciple doesn't do and he pretty much covered everything i could think of oh. you know greed <laughs> anger hatred uh worshiping false idols um Taking on, even mentioned you, you in the comment translated it, even taking on social causes with an eye making intent. And that's, to me, that's a big one today. I think a lot of people are caught up in that one. Um, you know, uh, what's that? What's that? Very angry about it. Yeah. And so I was just blown away by how much information was in there and how much depth like just how how much he covered and it, I, I enjoyed reading it thank you anthony always good to see you i mean we could almost go right back and do this again couldn't we and there'd be more and more and more and more uh that we get out of it but we're not going to do that we're going to we'll do yeah probably here so and i i even liked how he made the reference to um Somebody who's practicing in, you know, like she, like sort of like not well off in private versus somebody who's got all this beautiful clothing, but that isn't really, doesn't really have their heart in it. Yeah. yeah. And I know people like that. And that's that, 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 that the trappings of their wealth um, almost is standing in front of them, deep diving into the Dhamma. Yeah, like it matters more to be seen than it really does to care. Yeah. But again, there's eye making, you know, it's it's a it's the toughest thing for human beings to get over, and it's the most important thing for human beings to get over. It's 
getting over on themselves. Thank you, Anthony. Um, anybody mind being on camera? Here's Julia. Hello, Julia. Thank you, John, for the teaching. And um, I started coming to Cross River just halfway through the series. So for me, coming to this cumulative, like complete teaching in the Dhammapada, I almost, <laughs> I feel like I just had like a newbie experience because listening to you go through it this morning, I felt like I was like, whoa, oh no, this is really top to bottom. But this discussion has helped me not feel like it was a lot. It was, it's just hearing, I, I'm sorry, I forget who mentioned it to talk about it, like a poem or a song. It just, I really appreciate that framing. And again, I think the one piece that um, sticks with me and that I am wrestling with being relatively new to this space is there's a line about how clinging to worldly entanglements is arrogant. I don't know if that was in your interpretation or the Sutta itself, but I'm reminded, was, sorry? Well, it was, it was in the Sutta itself yeah. that I translated to that. Right. But what I find helpful is just having been here at Tanef to know about the middle path and being gentle with yourself is just, it still feels very accessible and yeah. worth going for. So thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you, I'm glad you <laughs> see it that way. The, the Buddha taught the Eightfold Path as the middle way between extreme views. Yeah. No, nothing magical or mystical about that. It's just, just to make that reference. The Eightfold Path keeps us centered. It keeps us going too far this way or that way. Yeah. And you stay right here. And of course, it's right here in this middle way that our life exists and not have those extreme views. You know, we're just human beings. We can't be more, but we can't be less either. And there's no reason to feel like there's less or there's something missing. Every human being is sovereign and whole and complete. Every one of us, no matter what type of life you're living, you're still a human being. <clears throat> And that's all we'll ever, uh, ever be. So why shouldn't we understand what it means? Mm -hmm. A good portion of what it means is as a consequence of having a human life, there's going to be stress, there's going to be dukkha. And Siddhartha teaches us, because it's that way, there's nothing personal about any of these events, any of these occurrences. It's just life unfolding. And we're fortunate enough to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. Again, to, I, I'm not kidding when I say my life is more meaningful today than it's ever been. And it's because of the little moments and, the, and the, the grandiose things that I used to grasp after. It's just being present for these little things. Conversations. I had a call from, uh, I had a, a talk last night with Devlin. I know. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we had just such a wonderful talk. Um, he's hoping to get back to the uh, to the sangha. He told me this. I'm getting a little bit off. Excuse me. Thank you. He told me this great story about him saving a cat and what he had to go through. And those of us that know devil can understand that. And, uh, he might even. He said he wants to. I think this is his way of coming back into the sangha in his own way. I think he's going to send an email to me that he wants me to distribute to all of you, telling you the story about. <laughs> what he did to save this cat, which is a remarkable story. Um, but anyway, you know, that was coming back into us. It has not, really nothing to do with, uh, with today's sutta. Um, 
but what what it does refer to is that uh, Dev is a guy that has organic troubles staying centered in, in this moment. But when he does, he talks about how remarkable his life is when he's not. It's really difficult. So it, it applies to all of us. So thank you, Julia. Zach, how are you? All right. Can you tell us about it? John, you would just you would just make a comment. Um, thank you for the pizza. Um, you just made a comment about the things I wrote down. What were the most important things we were taught we needed to develop or gain in this lifetime? And I think that's just a fairly profound question to think through in relation to what we're learning here. Yeah, uh, something I'm excited to chew on. <laughs> that's it. That's a you, you took a good bite. The whole sandwich leads to awakening and uh, understanding that. But you know, maybe that's a, a you know a good way to say it. We you know we and Julia led into that too. It is we we bite off little chunks that we can swallow in the moment, and then the next class. I mean, if I taught this class again Tuesday, there'd be something else that we'd be able to take a bite out of. But we're going to go to another sutta. And it's, it's really the same thing. As I started restoring, I've restored about 350, 308 gallons of Bahamas sutras. Um, and I started noticing the repetition. Um, the the Dhamma Chaka Pavakana Sutta is on the Four Noble Truths. The Saka Vibhanga Sutta is on the Four Noble Truths. Both of them are similar, but in the context in which they're presented, they teach a, a nuanced way of looking at it which is the same as it is for all, all of us. You know, the, the, the Eightfold Path and the teachings are, stay the same for us, but our experiences of them depend on what we're holding in mind in the moment, what we understand in the moment. And so there's always, always more here. I, again, I, I know I've mentioned this, I got a call now a couple of years ago from a new student who didn't continue, but, uh, he was kind of agitated and wanted to know why did the Buddha keep awakening after his, keep meditating after his awakening. He, he was looking at meditation as a burden and something he had to do to get somewhere. But of course, Siddhartha kept meditating. It was what he did. You know, twice a day, every day, maybe more, the Buddha meditated because it was delightful for him to do so. Why would he not? And the same is true for us, or at least eventually we get to the point where we see jhana meditation as the key to liberation, to understanding. And so, of course, we're delighted about it. Thank you, Zach. I'll go to Ron. How are you, Ron? Everything's wrong. Everything's good. See you. Thank you for teaching me on the phone one more time. I loved it. Um, yeah, especially in this last chapter of the both the directness and the gentleness really yeah. comes through. Yeah. It's a path of ease. It's all I have. Yeah. The, the, the real compassion of this man comes through in all the suttas, but really in this last, you know, I've been talking for weeks, if I think I'm crazy, but I think, you know, the, to me, the Dhammapada builds to this crescendo. To me, this is it. At this musical uh, composition, mm. quite an ending. 
Thank you, Rob. Good morning, Jen. Hi, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Um, when you were talking about, you know, when you were a kid and being angry all the time, I that I was thinking about how um, frustration is definitely uh, something that I struggle with. Um, and I see how, like, I could get frustrated about a thing and then see that I'm frustrated and then get frustrated that I'm frustrated because yeah. I recognize that being frustrated makes me frustrated and it's, it's not, <laughs> and this, right. the, you know, this, the, uh, the feedback loop there. Yeah. Um, and uh, so this, I feel like this sutta really speaks to how to engage the Dhamma in those situations where we recognize greed, aversion, and delude thinking, you know, perhaps we are experiencing a hindrance like ill will towards ourselves in the form of frustration that in order to really abandon that, we just ironically have to allow that hindrance to arise and pass away on its own, which means you have to just be frustrated. <laughs> Isn't that frustrating? <laughs> So it's, it's that, that irony in the, in the gentleness and finding the middle way, yeah. really just, if you see, if you're, if you're lucky enough to have the concentration to see it, to see the frustration, then just allow it to arise and pass away on its own. And that is your only course of action because dukkha occurs. So that's kind of what I that's where I where I am today. That's, that's all I got. Thank you. It. Thank you. <laughs> it, it, it's a great place. I, you know, if I'm frustrated, okay, I'm frustrated. Right. Understanding impermanence, I don't have to do anything about it. Right. I get frustrated about it. I'm frustrated. <laughs> mm -hmm. Take a breath. Figure out how to not get frustrated in the future. Yeah. Or, yeah. Which is Dhamma practice. In, yeah. In this moment. Yeah. Oh, no longer frustrated. Mm -hmm. But if you find out in the next breath you're still frustrated, mm -hmm. what do you do? You take a breath. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jen. Mm -hmm. Good morning, Mary. So easier said than done. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> So this week I experienced disappointment um, as a result of ignorance and maybe some eye making and conditioned thinking all rolled up in a nice big <laughs> knot. And, um, you know, hard to shake. Um, 
spend a few days probably right up into class, you know, planning and wishing everything would be different than it is. Um, and realizing that the, you know, power to interrupt is within me to interrupt that thinking that nothing is, nothing at all has happened. And, um, you know, there is cessation and, you know, the way forward is, you know, I memorized a long time ago all the first letters of the Eightfold Path, you know, when I was in my memorization phase, you know. So I just need to work myself through that. And it's not linear. I might go hop over here and yeah. do a little right effort and then a little <laughs> mindfulness. In fact, you know, um, the rigor of a good meditation practice, which I, I never left. So, um, but possibly bring more thoughtfulness. Um, and concentration to it, right? There's always more you can do. Yeah. And I feel like I always say this, but you know, like it is profound, but it is also just so simple. It is the four noble truths in the eightfold path mm -hmm. because yeah. that is everything that everybody's just talked about. And as I'm sitting here looking at all this stuff on your wall, which you should probably sell, by the way, because we could all use this on our walls. And I'm also surprised that it was 2016 when that whiteboard occurred at that retreat and then these resulted from it um, so long ago. But it's all right there. It's all contained in, in the frames, the two frames that you have up there. It's all there right in front of us. And it's, I think the hardest part for me is the interrupting, um, is the interrupting yeah. because I'm holding on to things. I'm pissed. <laughs> I'm not really, but I, you know, anyway, working through it and I'm grateful that I have this to come out the other side and be more calm and concentrated. Thank you, Mary, for your, for your honesty, too, because that, that you're describing real power practice, not something mm -hmm. that's a, a fabrication. It says it is right here, right now. Yeah. And sometimes we're pissed. You know, what happens when we find out that we're pissed? Well, as power practitioners, we should first beat the hell out of ourselves. <laughs> we treat ourselves with gentleness because we understand we're human beings. I'm almost there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and the recognition of where you are and what to do and that you that you have something to do that's actually real profound mm -hmm. but it's simple that that, that is again that's not a practice yeah. it's just like that thank you thank you good morning david yeah. i always think about the opportunity opportunity you have here. I have so many teachers. Now we have two new teachers and Julie and Zach. Yeah, they don't know it yet. They don't know it, <laughs> but they are. And my friend Kevin who talks about the poem, nature of it. And I think of that as the breathing in and breathing out. Breathing in and breathing out. You just feel that. It's a metaphor, but it's also what Jennifer was experiencing. Yeah. 
the directed thought and evaluation. That's all you have to. It's what you're experiencing. Mm -hmm. You don't have to fight it off. You don't have to accept it. <coughs> it's happening because it's happening. When I breathe in and breathe out, with all this commentary and all this thing, this is what we have to be to be an archon. Understand the right view. Everything else is commentary after that. It really is. Yeah. It's a practice of diligence and right effort. And it's worth it because to not do that is the burden of that something you have to put down. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you, David. Uh, yeah, that was a, a, a it, in its way, in, in your way, a really nice synopsis of the Dalapada as well. Um, You know, I, I started saying how, how much I get out of this each and every time I go through it, and we go through it. Um, and so we've concluded another review of the Dhammapada. We're really fortunate to have this. You're really fortunate to have me. <laughs> but, I, but, I, but, but I'm really fortunate to have me too. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know why I started seeing the suttas the way I see them, which I think is the way the Buddha taught. Um, but I'm just so fortunate. I really am. You know, I was, uh, I don't even know how to describe myself before, except I was just lost. I was just. And so now, you know, the fifth or sixth or seventh time through the Dhammapada, um, I'm almost kind of sad that it's over because it, uh, it was just such a profound experience for me uh, to go through this and teach it. And even though and we had, I think, five or six or other Dhamma teachers taught during that time as well, all excellent classes. And now we're moving on. Impermanence has intervened in our Sangha and it always will. And uh, we're moving, kind of building up to our uh, annual retreat. The next three classes are, um, I think they're really apropos classes for where we are finishing the Dhammapada, moving on to the retreat. But really, it could be any three suttas between now and uh, we have three classes before our retreat. And they would all be like that because, as Mary said, Buddhist teaching is profound, um, but it's very simple. And nearly every sutta is a complete teaching in its own. Um, that's it. Any other questions or <coughs> comments before we finish with Meta? Turn your camera. Oh, thank you, David. Here's Johnny. As much as we all enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I can't believe I said we're all fortunate to have me. I said it. You said it twice. Yeah, and I'm going to stick by it.
words on the Karaniya Metta Sutta, describing again what it means to be an arahat, an awakened human being. This is what is done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. They are able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. They remain unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, they are peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. They do not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. They are always mindful that all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. They are always mindful to not deceive another or despise any being in any state. They abandon anger and ill will with ease, never wishing harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, the wise disciple cherishes all living beings. They radiate kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, they maintain refined mindfulness. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, they abandon ignorance of four noble truths. Having completed the path, they are not born again into this world. Thank you all for the wonderful... Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.